Why are you here? I don't mean here in this room. I mean, why are you here on this planet? What for? That might be the most serious question we can ever ask ourselves. It's not a, it's not a, a question that people just uh, kind of just pass on by as if it doesn't matter. If you Google search it, if you Google search what's the meaning of life, I did it the other day. I pulled up 770 million results. It's a troubling question, not just for us, not just for us in our own context or culture, but for everybody all over the world. It's a troubling question because nobody wants to think that their life has no ultimate purpose, no ultimate meaning. Nobody's willing to live with that. And it's also a troubling question because it's, it's troubling, at least to me, to think that there might be 700 plus million different answers to that question. I mean, how do you ever know if you're hitting the mark, if you're actually achieving something meaningful with your life? Well, more and more, at least within our culture, this is not a secret to you. I'm sure you've seen this. In our culture, when we talk about meaning, we see meaning as something that you yourself are meant to create. You create meaning for yourself, which, which means you look within yourself and you identify who you are or who you want to be, and then you assert that identity. You express it no matter what anybody else thinks. You do you, and that's what gives life meaning. You get to create it for yourself. Very liberating thought for a lot of people. Now, in most traditional cultures, the emphasis is not on us. You devote yourself to your family. You devote yourself to your country, to a cause. It's something beyond you, and that's what gives your life meaning. And then, of course, there's the religious view. The religious view says that God created us, and therefore our lives have meaning by default, by definition. If God made you, then your life is meaningful, and you find that meaning in him. It's wrapped up in God, in your religious belief. Now, obviously, I hold to that third view. I don't believe that we can create our own meaning, really and truly, but that we find our meaning in the one who created us, that God defines and bestows meaning on our lives. But I want to say today that the Christian story, the Christian life, does not stop short there. We don't stop with the question of meaning alone, because really that question's not enough for us. It's not enough for you and I to say, I believe in God and he gives meaning to my life. That may be true, but it's not enough. It's not enough to say, God blesses me and gives me direction for my life. That's true too, but it's not enough. See, when we talk about the Christian faith and the uniqueness and the power of what we believe, it goes beyond simply the question of meaning and into something more. We push beyond it, and the word I'm going to use today is another M word. It's the word mission. Meaning is important, but it's not ultimate. Ultimately, what we're here for, the reason God put you here, is for a mission. And it doesn't start with us. It actually starts with him. The great story of the Bible is that God did not wind up the world and let it go and wish us the best, that God came to us on a mission, and therefore, because he came for us, we share in that mission as well. Because God has a mission, so do we. And I think we see that on display in Luke chapter 5 today. We're going to see it, not expressly, but we see it throughout the story. It permeates the story that I just read for us, that God is on mission. And if we're wondering why we're here, I think we'll find today that the answer is much more meaningful than we ever imagined. Because it's not just about me or you. It's about something beyond us that we find in the very person of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. We're going to walk through this story again. That Jesus came with a mission, and now we get to be a part of it. We'll see it on display. Luke 5, 17. One day Jesus was teaching. 
And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law that came and sat down. This is the first time in the book of Luke that we see the Pharisees come into the picture. They'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, but not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof. They let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this story begins like a lot of the healing stories of Jesus. You've got a big crowd around him, pressing in on him. Jesus often had a crowd around him. You've got a person in front of Jesus who is in desperate need. There's a, there's a clear and obvious need for physical healing. But Jesus throws a curveball right into the middle of this story. This is a unique miracle story in the scripture. Because here, here we have this scene, all the, all the variables going on at once. We've got Jesus standing here in the midst, in the midst of this great crowd. This man who's been lowered down through the roof by his buddies, this incredible act of friendship and kindness and mercy. They've lowered him down at Jesus' feet. This large crowd has packed into this house, and they're all anxiously awaiting to see what's going to happen. Is a miracle going to take place here? What's, what's he going to do? And then beyond that, you've got these Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. They're perched on the outskirts, it seems, and they're with eagle eyes watching Jesus critically. They're waiting to see what he's going to do because they're trying to catch him. All right, they're after him. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus looks down at this man, this helpless guy, this paralyzed man, and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now that to me is something that might have just sucked all the air out of the room because it's so, it's a curveball, it's out of place. This man uh, didn't come for, for forgiveness. I mean, as far as we know, he, he came for a, a clear and obvious need. He came to be healed, right? And so what's Jesus up to in throwing this curveball into the equation? Certainly forgiveness is important. We'll talk about that. But it just doesn't seem to fit the narrative. And then beyond that, we've got the Pharisees, and they're asking a legitimate question. Wait a minute. Who does this guy think he is? Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Now, that is a fair question. You know, the Pharisees get a bad rap, rightfully so. They were always on the wrong side of things. Jesus was always correcting them and, and showing them what God is really like, and they had somehow missed it entirely, right? But they're asking a fair question here. Because for the religious leaders, blasphemy is the most monstrous thing they could imagine. That, that for a person to elevate himself to the place of God, I mean, that is in their culture, and, and according to the law, when a person does that, he's worthy of death. A man doesn't just casually make himself out to be God. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. It seems, at least from our perspective in reading the story, that he makes that proclamation almost kind of casually. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. These guys are saying, what? Nobody can say that. Nobody can do that but God. So what's Jesus up to? Why the curveball in the middle of the story? Why this talk about forgiveness when there's clearly a, a different need at stake here? And here's what I think that Jesus is revealing his mission here by meeting this man's greater need. 
Jesus is revealing his mission, not just to the man in front of him, but to the whole crowd, including the Pharisees, and by extension to us as we read this story. He's showing us why he came by meeting this man's true and deep need. See, Jesus looks at this helpless man, this hopeless guy, and he calls him friend. And he says, I forgive your sins. And I believe this, that the message would have been abundantly clear to everybody in this room, everybody who's witnessing this story take place. They're watching, and they should be very clear on what Jesus is communicating. This man, bad off as he is, he needs something more than just physical healing. As, as pitiable as his situation is, as bad as his body looks, they're crumpled up under this, this weight of a crowd and, and just laying on a stretcher, completely helpless to do anything. There's a deeper problem for him that Jesus has to address, that he wants to address first. And even now for us, as we kind of read this story over Luke's shoulder so many years later, you see, this is where we ought to find ourselves in this story as well. This story involves us. Because it's not just an account of Jesus doing a miraculous thing for somebody else. This story, I think, is a big arrow that points us to what Jesus came to do for you and for me. This is his mission on display. The Apostle Paul filled in some of the blanks for us. You know, Jesus doesn't say any of these things explicitly. So just so you know, I'm not reading into this. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter of Romans, one of the most profound works ever put uh, pen to paper. Romans. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about our spiritual condition before God. And I want you to see, I think there's a very clear parallel here to the story we're reading. In Romans chapter 5 verse 6, Paul says about us, all of us, he says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You probably heard it at the, at the front of that little section, what Paul calls us. He says, while we were still helpless. That word helpless, that's a moral term for Paul. It's not a physical term, but it means incapacitated. It means, in, in, in spiritual terms, the very same thing that this man in Luke 5 was experiencing in physical terms, that this is our condition before God. He is righteous. God is altogether perfect and good, and we are not. We are sinful. We are unrighteous, and we are paralyzed to do anything about it. That is the great narrative of the whole Bible that we do not measure up to God. We cannot climb a ladder up to God, even if such a ladder existed. We don't have it in us to do it. We're helpless, Paul says. We're incapacitated. We're desperately sick. He even says we're spiritually dead. We have nothing to do. And that truth is meant to humble us. See, that, that truth is true across all cultures for all people, regardless of our external circumstances. And I want to encourage us to consider this, that it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many friends you have, how popular you are, how great you've achieved. It doesn't even matter how religious you are. Certainly the Pharisees, the scribes, were as religious as they come. And yet they were on the outside looking in here from what Jesus was trying to communicate to them. Even religion falls short. Ultimately, we are helpless before God, and that's what makes a story like this so precious, that this is more than an account of a man being healed of a physical ailment. This is the word of Christ. 
that echoes to him, friend, your sins are forgiven, but it echoes to every single person who turns to Jesus in faith. See, that's the good news of Romans chapter 5. We're called, in that little section I read, we're called helpless, ungodly sinners. Those are bad things. And yet Paul infuses that bad news with an overwhelming goodness. He says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That God demonstrates his own love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we read Luke chapter 5 and we see Jesus looking upon this helpless man, a victim of circumstance, something he can't help. And yet the first thing Jesus says to him, he calls him friend and he addresses his deepest need. And in that case, Jesus speaks to all of us today. Every single person in that room on that day and every single person in this room today needs to hear these words. That when we recognize our helplessness, our sin, we look to Jesus Christ and we see him graciously, lovingly look back and call you friend. Your sins are forgiven you. That's the gospel. That's how Luke 5 involves us too, because what Jesus was doing for this man lying at his feet is the very same thing that every man in that room needed, whether they knew it or not. And it's the same thing that we all need. Helpless apart from it. And so the story is of Jesus Christ revealing his mission. He doesn't say it explicitly, but we see it, it's clear, that he came to forgive sins. Elsewhere, Jesus said it more explicitly. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he said to Zacchaeus. Jesus said elsewhere, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I came into the world as light so that those who believe in me may not remain in darkness. I came to call sinners to repentance. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's why I came. Later on, the Apostle Paul said this to Timothy. He said, this is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. Paul said, no one can argue with this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's God's mission. He didn't wind this thing up and walk away. He came for us. And he came to do the one thing we could never do for ourselves. He came to save us through his forgiveness. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ looked at us from the cross and he called us friends. Now, the story's only half over. It'd be a good place to stop. We're not going to stop. The story's only half over. Because the Pharisees' question still remains, right? They've asked this question, a legitimate question. Who in the world does this guy think he is? Who can, who can proclaim forgiveness of sins? That's something only God can do, right? Well, the, the answer's in verse 22. Verse 22, Jesus, aware of their reasonings, he's reading their minds. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say get up and walk? Now, Jesus, is, he's kind of setting up a false hypothetical here. Because both of those statements, forgiveness of sins, get up and walk, those are both things that only God can do. And yet one is easier to say than the other. One's easier. To say, I forgive your sins, that's easier. Because there's no proof. The proof's intangible. It's something you can't see. To say, get up and walk, oh, now all of a sudden the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? He's either going to get up or he's not. So they're both divine statements, but one's easier to say than the other. And Jesus technically has said the easier one first. Verse 24, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, 
I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and he went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Can you even imagine this scene? You've got, uh, you've got this, this, this helpless man, this paralyzed man, just lying on a mat on the floor. Nothing he can do. Nothing he can do. Blink his eyes at best. It's all he can do. And Jesus looks at him with, with his atrophied muscles, a man who, for all we know, had never taken a step in his life. He says, get up. And immediately the man springs up in the fullness of strength. He takes his little mat, good for nothing now. Serves him no purpose. He can maybe sew it into an apron or something. I don't know. It does him no good anymore. He doesn't need it. And he goes home glorifying God. And the place just erupts. Nobody's ever seen anything like this before. This is uncharted territory for them. And Luke is careful to tell us that the people in, the, in this room, the people witnessing this miracle, they're not just impressed, they're afraid. And when Luke uses that term that they were fearful, it really means reverent. Um, they knew they had been visited by God, and they were shaking as a result. An incredible scene. But you know, I wonder, and, and we don't really know, I wonder if they really got it. I mean, clearly they're, they're amazed. Clearly they're, they're just beside themselves. But did they really get what Jesus was trying to communicate to them in this story? Do we? See, this is a miracle story, yes, but it's a miracle story with two miracles in it, not one. One miracle is much more obvious. It's, it's, it's much more spectacular. But the other miracle is more necessary, and ultimately it's greater. See, one miracle gives life to this man's limbs, but the other miracle gives life to his eternal soul. And the physical healing, if that's all it was, would have done him no good, ultimately, eternally, if not for the first miracle that came his way. Jesus even says it plainly. He says, let this physical healing be proof to you of my authority to forgive sins. That's what Jesus came to do. The lesser, in this case, is proving the greater. Do we see that? And it's all Jesus. He performs both miracles. And they, for him, are, are, I mean, he makes them look easy because he's the divine son of God. This is what he does here. The physical healing proves the greater thing, the the forgiveness of sins, the thing that, that not just the man in front of him needed, but that we all need, Jesus came to do. See, when we, when we talk about the meaning of life, um, I think typically, at least in our culture, I think our, typically we're thinking on individual, personal, internal kind of terms. The meaning of life. Why am I here? What have I been put here to do? But you know what we see in this story? The good news of Jesus. That the most essential thing for us, the most essential thing that we can ever have or know or experience is not something that we do. It's something that's done for us. And see, that's why it's called the gospel. It's not good advice on how we are in, to improve our lives and be better, more religious people. It's good news. It's the proclamation of something that has been done, that has been achieved for you, for me. The most essential miracle in this story is not just what the paralyzed man needed. It's what we all need, and it's the thing that Jesus does 
for us, for Jesus to look upon you and me in our helplessness and our sin, and rather than condemning us as we deserve, he calls us his friends, and he says, you're forgiven, you're free. And see, life will never have true meaning for you unless you hear and internalize those words. And I, and I say this with full confidence. You can search far and wide. You can look for it everywhere until your dying breath. Life will never have true meaning, real, solid, eternal meaning, apart from what Jesus Christ said to that man and what he says to us by faith. Your sins are forgiven you. See, if we seek meaning in our circumstances or even our own uh, intuition, our own compass, we're seeking something that ultimately is just a figment of our imagination. Who sets the standard? It, it begins and it ends with me. But Jesus Christ says in this story, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus declares to us what it's really all about. His mission was to come and to do this for you. And that's the good news. We have salvation as a gift by faith. The greater gift that that man walked away with was not strength in his legs. It was the eternal salvation of his soul. And all of us get that as a free gift by faith. Now, I said at the beginning that this is a story about mission, and it is. Clearly, I, think we've, I hope we've seen the mission of Jesus in coming for us. It's on display in this story. It's spelled out explicitly for us throughout the Scripture. But we said at the beginning that the Christian life pushes us beyond just meaning for ourselves and into mission, Jesus' mission, which is now bestowed upon us. It's given to us. We're called out into something else now as a result of being brought in by his grace. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Jesus died for all, so that they who live, that's they who have faith and have salvation, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we have a life, you and I, a new life, that we get to live for Christ. We don't have to seek answers in ourselves, in our circumstances, in our culture, on Google, we find everything in Christ, and now we are swept up into a life that doesn't look back. We spend our lives now for him because he deserves all honor, glory, praise, and devotion. We live for him, okay? And that means that for us, we move beyond meaning. We move beyond the internal uh, sense of who we are and why we're here because we know the answer to that already, and we move outward now into mission. We move into mission. Um, what does that mean? What does that call us into? Well, there's actually a great picture of it here in Luke 5. It's in the story. I glossed over it on purpose so that we could come back around to it. It's probably the most famous part of this story. Go back to verse 18. Luke 5, 18. Some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. They let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of the Lord. Now, that is an awesome story of friendship, isn't it? And maybe you've heard it proclaimed that way. Look, look at how great these friends are to this man. And it's true. But it's not just a story about friendship. A friendship so devoted that they'd be willing to hoist their friend up on the roof and remove the tiles of the roof to, to lower him down, property that didn't belong to them, at the cost that they surely would have, would have had to bear as a result, right? Great friendship. But see, if we, if, we, if we only talk about that, we stop short of the true nature of what drove them. Look at verse 20. Jesus, Luke says, seeing their faith, 
said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Words matter now. Luke is careful to tell us that Jesus didn't see his faith, the faith of the man at his feet, the man who had faith to be healed, right? True. Luke doesn't say that. He says Jesus saw their faith. Plural. Their faith. This was an act on their part that was driven not by friendship merely, not by pity that they felt sorry for him. It was an act that was driven by faith. These men had faith in Jesus to heal their friend. They didn't look at him as a traveling salesman selling miracles, selling tonics, anything that we can reach out for to help our friend. No, they had locked their eyes on the person of Jesus Christ and they had faith in him, so much so that no obstacle could stand in their way. They were going to get their friend to Christ. There was nothing more important for them than to act in faith and get their helpless friend to Jesus. They were on a mission, right? And see, that's a wonderful picture for us as to what God calls us into. Not only that we would know him by faith, that's primary, that comes first, but that we would delight now to bring others to him. I mean, that's, that's ultimately the mission that Jesus Christ calls us into is not just to live a meaningful life on our own terms, or even a meaningful life on his terms, that I'm going to follow God, I'm going to find my meaning in him. That's great, right? But that's not enough. Because he's put us here for something greater, for something more ultimate, and for something more significant. This is how Jesus' mission becomes our mission. What he came to do, he now allows us to partner with him. We are called co-laborers. We are called the people of God who go out for the sake of of his mission into his kingdom, where we move beyond our individual pursuits of meaning. We move beyond seeing our lives as belonging to us. We move beyond selfish ambition, lesser ambitions, and we adopt the ambition and the mission of Jesus Christ. What he came to do, now we come to do. The only difference is, whereas he was pointing people to himself, we don't point people to ourselves, we point people to him. We share in what he came to do. It's been said that Jesus never brings a person in without also then sending us back out. That if Jesus Christ, by his grace, forgives your sins, he brings you into the household of God. You become an adopted child of the Heavenly Father himself. Ah, but then he delights to send you back out. He he doesn't incubate us until heaven comes. He sends us back out into this world, into this darkened world, into this difficult world. And he says, now you are my ambassadors. You are my children to fulfill my mission. It's the way God set it up. That's why we call the church Harvest, by the way. Not just because we thought it sounded cool. We named the church Harvest because it represents something Jesus said about why we're here. And in, in the book of John, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, lift up your eyes and look that the fields are white for harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest. That means that right now where we sit in our community, not just our world broadly and at large, but in our community here, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look, behold the fact that the time is always opportune, that people will always exist, live and breathe among us who desperately, helplessly need what only Jesus Christ can provide. And so Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the harvest. That is the truest act of love and friendship a Christian can ever do, is to see the world as a harvest. And my primary reason for living and breathing on this earth is to help others see and experience the grace that I've come to see and experience for myself. 
So when we ask the question, what are we here for? Why am I here? The answer doesn't begin with me and it doesn't end with me. It's not a self-created meaning that ultimately can be something it's entirely selfish. For all we know, there's no standard that, that says whether that's right or wrong, right? I think that's why we as human beings like that idea of self-created meaning. You can't tell me if it's good or bad. I just get to do what I want. No, it doesn't begin with me, and it certainly doesn't end with me. It begins with God. Remember that God created us, and he made us in his own image. He didn't just put us here to wander. He made us to reflect his very nature and character that we might come to know him and that we might then be sent out for his sake, that we might be on mission with him and for him. It begins with God and it ends with God. God graciously and strategically put you here. You may not feel that way. You may not believe that. You may not like it here. You may, not, you may be in a position where you can't wait for the thing to, to come along that will allow you to get away from here. But even then, no matter where you are, you are strategically there for God's sake, not for your own. And that's what it is to be a Christian, that we see the world differently, that we see our homes differently, that we see all of life now through a new lens because God has put something in us that we just can't get away from. There's a mission now that overwhelms us. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf, right? And that's a wonderful thing. It's not a burden for us. It's a privilege. And so the question we have to ask is this, do I see my world through that lens? Do I look at my own life as the reason I'm here is to know Christ, yes, but also to make him known? And I realize how daunting that question is for, for most of us. Um, it's a daunting question for me. It may sound strange from, coming from a pastor, but it's true. When I think about sharing my faith, when I think about making Jesus known in my life, that's something that, that um, at times makes my skin crawl. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for most of us. And so, hey, as we close, I'm just, I want to give you two encouragements here. This is not going to be a how-to seminar on how to do it. Okay? There's a time and place perhaps for that. I'm just going to give you two encouragements that are very common sense things, I think. But I hope that will spur us on in this direction. Okay? If we know why we're here, then we also know what we're for. Okay? And I want to encourage you in this. Two things. First, you know, somebody did this for you. And maybe it's easy for us to forget that. But somebody did this for you. Somebody spoke the grace of God to you. Somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody gave you a Bible. Now, it may have been a pastor, but probably not. It, it was more likely a parent or a sibling or a teacher or a friend, an ordinary person who modeled and explained the grace of God for you. Perhaps it came into your life when you were very young and you had it modeled well, or maybe it came far later in your life, or maybe you're sitting here today and you're still waiting on it. And I hope today's your day. But someone did this for you. Uh, someone modeled for you what it's like and told you what it means to trust in Jesus. And this is how God has rigged it. This is how God has made it to be. That somebody else was an instrument of grace in your life and helped you to know the Lord Jesus. And so the question, the natural question then becomes, who are you that someone for? If someone very ordinary did it for you, who are you that someone for? Because that's the way it's meant to be. It's a generational reality. And it's not, again, it's not a burden for us any more than I'm sure that person who was in your life saw it as a burden. Of course not. It's a privilege. A privilege. 
to make sure that my children know and understand the gospel, a privilege to make sure my friends know who I am and what I stand for and all about my story, that they then might know what it is to, to experience this grace as well. It's not a burden, it's a privilege. Who are, who are you that someone for? And then second, I, I just want to remind you of context here. Remember, I quoted this from John a minute ago, what Jesus said. He said, lift up your eyes and look. And now I think in the moment Jesus was speaking to his disciples, I think he was speaking to them quite literally, guys, look up, because there was a group of people coming their way that needed to hear the gospel. But for us, it's something that, for me, I need to say it to myself constantly. I mean, really, as I charge through my day, as I'm so prone and tempted to see people as commodities, that we just buy, sell, exchange, chit-chat. That's, 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 that's all we're really here for. I've got to make sure to get, to get the, the work done. I've got to make sure to get through the day, Right? But constantly throughout the day, I've got to hear the, the Spirit of God say to me, Kyle, lift up your eyes and look. Behold, Jesus says, the fields are white for harvest. That means that right here in our community, the fields are white for harvest. This is always true until the day that Jesus returns. And I want to encourage you in this, that you would hear the words of Jesus himself saying, lift up your eyes, Kyle, and look. Starting in your home around your dinner table, look. Every single day is an opportunity within your family to share the good news of Jesus, to model what it is to be a Christian. Even if everybody around your table is already a Christian, you think they need to stop hearing it somehow? It's always opportune. Where we work, where we go to school, the teams that we're on, the friendships that we have, every single moment for us is opportune. We live in an amazing world where you can text message a person to communicate. Every moment is opportune, even if you can't be there face to face. Look, and I, it's, it's, a, it's a humbling thing for me that I have to hear it so often. The voice of Jesus saying to me, Kyle, get your eyes off yourself. Get out of your bubble. Get out of your self-concern all the time. Get out of seeing people as just commodities. Look, you've been given a mission that is endlessly, eternally significant. See, if God is our greatest treasure, if Jesus Christ is our greatest hope, if we acknowledge that, that we're not going to find suitable forms of meaning and mission elsewhere in this world, there's a lot of good things, perhaps, that we can put our hands to. There's nothing like this. There's nothing so ultimate as this. Put your hand to anything less, and you may find only little spurts of fulfillment at best, but you won't find what Jesus Christ came to give you, which is life. And so if we believe that to be true, then we ought to be a people who pray that way. And so here's my encouragement to you. Here, here's, a, here's a practical thing that I've got to do. And uh, it's, it's, it's at least easy to do. The outcome will, will surely stretch us. But think about this. Would we be a people who are willing to pray this prayer and it'll take you 10, 15 seconds to pray it every morning, but simply to say, God, will you give me opportunity today to bring someone to Jesus? Now, when I say that, I'm not saying necessarily that you're going to see a person converted to the faith that day. That may happen. All you may do in that moment, in that day, is plant a seed, okay? Because ultimately, the conversion part's not up to us anyway. That's the Spirit's work. So I'm not saying that somehow if the fullness of that salvation in a person's life, if you don't see it that day, that you failed. No. But if I'm going to bring a person to Jesus, I'm going to point a person to Jesus today. I'm going to make sure that that person knows 
that, uh, that they are prayed for that day. And if God should give me the grace, I'll pray with them in that moment. I think that might change a person's outlook, change a person's day, change a person's perspective about who to turn to in a time of need. Now they've got you. Can I share a scripture with somebody today, God? Open a door for me today to share a scripture. Some of us don't know a lot of scripture. Just pick one. All right, pick a good one now. Don't turn to 2 Kings on me or something, okay? I mean, go, just go to, go to John three sixteen. all right? But play it safe. Get one into your mind and heart so you can share it and pray that God would give you somebody to share it with. God, give me the courage to share my own story of salvation, even if it's just a portion of it today, about something I've gone through that might connect a person to the grace of God today. Father, give me the opportunity to forgive somebody today. Give me the courage to serve somebody today. And in that way, maybe I'll model the light of Jesus Christ and have a, an open door for the gospel. That, that's not a terribly difficult prayer to pray, to say it. But see, I believe that God would delight to answer it. I believe that God would actually promote those opportunities in our lives if we're simply willing to lift up our eyes and look for them. And see, that's when we have the opportunity by the Spirit's grace to do it. If I love God for all that he's done for me, and if I believe that God put me here for something more than just me, for this, then, then we ought to want to pray this prayer, not in fear and trepidation, not as a burden that's something I have to do, but Lord, let me be a part of this. Let my life count for your sake. Let me be that someone for someone else because someone did it for me too. Would you be willing to pray that kind of prayer? God, give me opportunity today and then give me the courage to step across the line. It's a dangerous prayer because I believe he'll answer it. And then I believe he'll give us the ability to walk through it. Now, a simple Google search is going to tell you how fleeting and how elusive the meaning of life is. Almost 800 million results. No one's really sure what it is or how to find it or how to hold on to it or how to even know when we've gotten there. But see, that's not our story. And we need to praise God for that today. Our story is not some fleeting, elusive thing, always chasing after what Solomon called in Ecclesiastes, always chasing after the wind and never catching up to it. That's not our story. See, our story is of a God who not only made us, but then came to get us, who entered into our darkness and sin. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act and come find him. He came to you. And now, by faith, Jesus Christ looks at you and he calls you his friend. And he says, the slate is clean. You are pure. You are forgiven. You have life in his name. See, that's a God whose mission was to come to you and bring you in. So that now he might delight to send you back out. That he delights to send us back out. That's why we're here. And there's nothing more meaningful than that. Let's pray. <clears throat> So, Father, we, we pray in this moment from a helpless place. Really and truly, Lord, if it's just us, if this is all there is, if there's no greater reality beyond just us in this room, um, then, Lord, we are, we are truly to be pitied. We're just searching for scraps. But Lord, if, if your word is true, if Jesus Christ loved us at our worst and submitted his hands and feet to be nailed to the cross so that we might have forgiveness of sins, then Lord, that means every single moment is meaningful. It's ultimately meaningful because we are your children called to your purpose.
And so, Father, I pray that in this place of helplessness that we would draw upon your strength. Father, we won't do this without you, but Lord, by your power, by your grace, Father, we have unlimited potential. That our homes, our neighborhoods, our communities might look utterly different because we took seriously the purpose for which you put us here. And so, Father, I pray, and I pray specifically this morning for those of us in this room who are much like me, who are timid at the thought of this. It may be even fearful that we lock up at the thought of this, of putting ourselves out there, um, of, of potentially being rejected. Father, would you, would you deal with us at the heart level this morning? We don't, need, we don't need a bunch of how-tos this morning. We need a heart that trusts you enough, that delights in you enough, that we see our lives as expendable. We don't, we're not living for ourselves. I don't need to live for my own reputation or for people's approval of me or disapproval. Father, you called me to live for you. You who died and rose again on my behalf. And so, Father, I pray that you would give me a heart to see my fears as being consumed with this amazing love and grace that would call me outward, that call me to see my world as a harvest. Lord, would you do that for us right now? Would we, would we personalize that prayer right now? That, Father, if we love you and trust you, you will give us everything we need to be the kind of people who graciously, lovingly, sincerely point others to you. Father, we, we live in a world full of helpless people, and we know it's true because that's who we were. And we thank you right now for the, for the folks, probably very ordinary folks, who pointed us to you. And we ask, Lord, for the, for the, the courage and the intentionality that we now get to be that someone for someone else. Lord, don't let that escape us. That's why we're here. So, Father, we pray uh, for a deeper faith, a deeper trust in your good news, your gospel, and we pray for the courage, Lord, to see ourselves as living for something far greater than our own bubble. Let's step into that new reality today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.